Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, everyone. This is Andy Richter, and uh, we got uh, another episode of The Three Questions here today. And I am talking today uh, with the author of the book of Joe, Trying Not to Suck at Baseball in Life, Joe Madden, who helped my Cubs to end their drought of 100 and, was it, eight years? Was that what it was? It was 108 years. Uh, and I didn't feel all of that, obviously, because I was kind of a late yeah, Cub yeah. fan, but it was, it was, and um, after we had won, I mean, all the all the Cub fans come out, and they were just so grateful. Every place they go, even now, I don't care where it is. I could be in Chicago. I could be, I'm in Tampa, Florida. It could be out in Los Angeles. It's incredible. Uh, the world is just like invested with Cub fans, and they are so grateful yeah. for that moment. And they're 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 wonderful. They're they they don't want anything. They're not even asking for autographs or pictures. Thank you, thank you for what you did. Yeah, uh, you know, we, we've been, you know, for years, we've been uh, wanting this to occur. My grandparents did not make it, whatever. And that's, that's the conversation and it's really appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was amazing. I have, I grew up with a stepfather, a plumber stepfather who, uh, cause I know you you grew up in a plumber's household, yeah. mm-hmm. um, who had season tickets from like 1970 on. So they were about $4 a piece when we, when he got them and he kept okay. them. So for me as a little kid, I played little league, but I wasn't big into into baseball or big into sports for that matter. Okay. But so I would get taken to Cubs games and it would, you know, and, I, and with, with the attention span that I got, I'm good for about two or three innings, <laughs> uh, but it was mostly, you know, the hot dogs and the Cracker Jack. And then it was really kind of like in my adult life that I started to sort of, cause uh, you know, it was like baseball was there, but I didn't choose it. Right. And it wasn't until in my adult life that I really started to appreciate what a interesting, captivating game that it is. And by it's the only thing I really, I mean, I like going to see people play basketball. I like going to see people play football, but baseball is the only thing that really grabs me because it's just, it's the most dramatic of it's the games. It's an intellectualized game also. I mean, you really have to pay attention to it. I mean, I know it's a little bit different now that it had been in, Listen, I am like the biggest fan of the National League game. I was, I was that one guy that was upset maybe there was others. There's just so much more to think about in the National League game, especially the dugout. I'll argue that with anybody. But yeah, listen, I was... I just was, because of the lack, the lack of the DH? Yeah, because the pitcher involved. And you have to keep track of the pitcher the whole game. If you're gonna, when yeah. you're going to pitch it, you may have to pitch it sooner. When you have to move the batting, what do you do your double switch because you might want to get multiple innings out of a certain pitcher. Yeah, I want to upgrade my defense. I got to be uh, wary of that and how that's going to impact how this lineup turns. Uh, that's the part that nobody, the DH, beautiful. Everybody wants more offense. Um, everybody, 
it's fun. Offense is fun. I get that. But I like a pure game of baseball. I like when it's pitched well, when it's caught the ball, the ball's caught well, when you catch the ball on defense, when you run the bases aggressively. And, well, I, I'm a fundamentalist with this game. Now, I, I've been involved in the more progressive component of this game, too, with the analytical stuff. But at the end of the day, the team that plays a better fundamental game of baseball on a daily basis normally wins uh, with good yeah. baseball players. So, I mean, that's where I come from all this. And final point, I mean, Chicago, Wrigley, you got a chance to hang out at Wrigley. Oh, yeah. There is major. There's the major. There's big leagues. And then there's, then there's the big leagues. Wrigley and the yeah. Cubs are the big leagues. I'm here to tell you that. That, that yeah. based on a daily basis doesn't happen anywhere else. I, I, I agree with you. And I'm, I feel particularly lucky because now I kind of have two teams. I mean, I, I had to sort of realize after living in Los Angeles for 22 years, I live here. Sure. I can't, you know, <laughs> I, and, and the Dodgers are such a fun team to watch. And certainly in the last few years, but I get to go, I mean, when I go see my teams, I'm getting to go to just the two most amazing baseball parks that there are. They're just, I mean, Dodger Stadium, I, it's just such a beautiful place to watch a baseball game. I, I really love it there. And Wrigley, yeah. La, last time I went to Wrigley, I, uh, my sister, who had been pestering me for years and for years to, to use my, my clout, I say <laughs> with air quotes, uh, <laughs> to get us a box. So I came a couple of years ago in the spring and I had my assistant cause I'm, t- I'd have, I have too much Midwestern shame to do it myself. I had my assistant reach out to the Cubs and say, Andy's coming to the game. Do you have a box? You know, can we, and they, they gave us a beautiful box really? and I can't, I think, I can't remember who they were playing. I want to say maybe, I, I don't even remember, but it was early in the season and it was 46 degrees. Oh Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a classic early Chicago Cubs baseball game, and uh, and it was it's just such a wonderful wonderful place to see a game. It's so much fun. I mean, they can be frustrating. My my younger brother, who is much more serious about, I mean, like in terms of getting his heart broken and getting <laughs> upset and a bad game ruining his day. Right. After <laughs> the Cubs won, won the won the. World Series, he he had he said, okay, now I can kind of, I can kind of step away from a little a little bit. He said, I I feel like I'm getting out of a bad marriage, you know, because he gets frustrated with ownership and stuff. But he was just happy they won, so he could kind of just put it behind him a little bit. That's that's that that's uh, the refrain I hear from a lot of the Cubs fans. And um, yeah, you have to. Re- I mean, I know you understand, but from my perspective. I was an American leaguer. I was in the, with the Eagles for so many years. Yeah. And then Tampa Bay. So I've been an American leaguer. I, I'd never been to Wrigley Field until 2014 when I went there with the Rays. We played there. Oh, wow. I, I think it was August. And we get there. The bus pulls up. I ran off that bus. I had my, I was carrying my backpack. I took my backpack, threw it on the chair at a desk um, in the manager's office. I ran down that catacomb kind of thing. Went to the dugout, just sat down because I had to see the Ivy Wall. Yeah, and I was not disappointed. I mean, it's so again. It, I, I'm into surrealistic moments. I think you know, may all your surrealisms come true. I think that's even more pertinent than your dreams. So you're sitting there and you're looking out there, and this is stuff I'd seen on WGN for so many years. I had ridden my bicycle out there once. I used to take my bike on the road, so I came up north as opposed to south. Yeah, one time from downtown, and I'd ride the uh, uh, rode my bicycle around there. But you get there, you go inside, and it's like wow. It's, uh, yeah. it's different. It's different than any, I mean, even it's different than Fenway. I like this, you know, Fenway's wonderful, but Wrigley's different because it's an enveloping 
this little circular kind of a gig that they got going on there. And it, yeah. it just feels like everybody's on top and, yeah. and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And, uh, and then, and then you get, then you get to interact with the fans, man, eventually. And it's like, like I'm yeah. telling you, man, it's nothing. Like, we had a, we had a makeup game on a Monday, Monday at one o'clock makeup game, not on the schedule. Right. Then we're leaving to go out of town right after that one o'clock makeup against Cleveland, 40,000 people. Yeah. Yeah. That, that doesn't happen anywhere. So, yeah, uh, to put my time in there five years was absolutely wonderful. And it's, uh, I mean, what's amazing about it when you go to other parks too, is it's integrated into a real living neighborhood That's correct. and always has been, I mean, it has, it's taken on a bit more of a theme park kind of feel lately, mm-hmm. but it's still such a, uh, it's, there's nothing like it, you know, I mean, Disneyland's fun too. Going to Wrigley field is really fun. It's a happening. So, it's a fraternity party every night. I mean, that it, it is. And I used to love my fraternity party. So I'm in the dugout and observing all this. Actually, we had a restaurant there right down the left field line for a brief period of time. Madden's. Oh, yeah. Polish. It was tremendous. Polish Italian was tremendous. Uh, and then what they did on, on park there, that little, that little park area there. Um, I can't remember uh-huh. what they called it. it it's, it's wonderful. Um, you still have the, 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 the pure baseball uh, atmosphere of Wrigley Field. The scoreboards they did, I think they did a great job because they're, yeah. they're big, but they blend in seamlessly, I think. And yeah. they almost look like they've been there forever. Uh, so I, I think that they have, they being the Cubs, have done a wonderful job of upgrading that, bringing it up to uh, 21st century speed without really impacting the ambience that somebody maybe felt there 75 years ago. Yeah. Well, let's get uh, into your... Your beginnings. You're from sure. a, you're from coal country in yeah. Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I believe both your grandfathers were coal miners. Yeah, they and, were, and they and they got out of that though. I mean, one did, one stayed. My, yeah. my Polish grandfather passed away from black lung. My mom, oh wow, would talk about him being on his deathbed spitting up black. I mean, he was literally spitting up black out of his lungs, and uh, apparently he liked to drink a little bit. So, but they stayed with him. They did not back off. If he wanted to drink, they give. Uh, that was my coach. That was my Polish side. My Italian grandfather, yeah. uh, Carmen, he left him, and that's where the plumbing comes from. He started a plumbing business. He met and started plumbing and eating up on 11th Street. And uh, that's where I grew up. And that's where my mom lived for like over 50 years. And it's still there. It's right next to the high school. But we had this plumbing business there. That's how you were identified. I was the son of a plumber. And my dad was like, no, and everywhere. My dad was the kindest, bestest man in history. Actually, he got my. Yeah. Right over there in my bag, I got his, his hat. I got his angel's hat in my bag and his steel Bible from World War II. Right in that bag right over there. I carry with me everywhere. Wow. So, yeah, that's, that's that was a cold country. I love going back there. That's, that's my dirt. That's where I grew up on that dirt. I really identify mm-hmm. with it. I feel, I feel different. When I walk there, I feel differently in a good way. Um, it's, yeah. It is different. I mean, we're at that time with European immigration. Now it's primarily um, Latin American immigration and even more primarily from Dominican Republic, which at the time I was growing mm. up, there was zero Latinos in my town. There was one black kid in the whole town. Yeah. Otherwise, it's, it's European immigrants. So we're re, we re, like we had Italian and Italian and Polish and Slovak, German, yeah. uh, Jewish yeah. section of town, Irish. I mean, it was different. You, you, the different churches and the different parochial schools indicated what part of town you were in. You know, not yeah. unlike Chicago. I mean, I, I've always felt like Cleveland is a microcosm of Chicago. I think that's part of why I felt so comfortable in Chicago. Look at the faces, talk to the people. Uh, the sensibilities were very similar, and I felt really comfortable 
being in that city with mm-hmm. those people. It's bigger, obviously, but uh, it's a city of neighborhoods. I mean, that's what Chicago is, and you feel like you just get to different neighborhoods. There's different ethnicities in each group, and I, I felt very much at home there. In in some of the reading that I was doing about you, you know, you grew up and you you, you helped in the plumbing shop. I mean, you know, that's normal family business stuff. Right. But at a certain point, you realized it wasn't for you, and, no. and did that happen pretty early on? Oh yeah, yeah. My dad was great. My dad would in the winter time he'd he'd hang up a tire in the backyard so I could throw football through it. In the uh-huh. winter time, also he'd put a basketball hoop downstairs in the shop. We called it the shop where his business was, and he'd shoot basketball. And in the summer, spring, summer, he'd be out every day, play catch with me, and throw me batting practice every day that, that he could. So the three seasons were basketball, football, and baseball, and he participated with me in all of them. So that's what we did. That's 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 what we did. Um, that's all I ever did. I, I, I did well in school, but all I was about was playing ball. I wanted to be. Even back then, I wanted to be a major league baseball player, although my better sport was football, uh, coming from that neck of the woods. But that's what we did. My dad, uh, every day, every day he was available to me. And he didn't, he had no qualms about you kind of no. moving on from the family business. Yeah. No, he was, he was all about that. He knew, he knew, he knew Joey wasn't into it. So he wasn't going to give me a hard thought. My, my brother, Mark, my brother, Mark, my brother, Mark still, uh, in like this big pump business in St. Augustine. So my brother, Mark, Oh, wow. My dad and my uncles, my dad and my uncles and my brother and my cousins, they all did that stuff. But from a very early age, it was obvious that I was not going to be working with my hands. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just wasn't. I mean, another thing and just kind of, you know, reading the book, I haven't read the whole thing, but, you know, attention span is very short. So <laughs> yeah, we're all in the you same know. boat, man. We're all in the yeah. same boat. <laughs> um, but, you, you know, your dad seems like such a kind person and, and that he was friendly and, you know, and he's described as kind of always having a smile on his face and a cigar hanging out of his mouth. And is that, do you think that that was like, because your, your coaching style from where you came up to like the kind of coaching style that you ended up, your managing style that you ended up with, it wasn't the get out there and play you sons of bitches. It was more of an understanding, more of a nurturing kind of style. And do you think that that came from your dad? Patience. My dad, my dad was the most patient man I've ever met. I mean, I really, I got my patience from my dad. My mom's not so much. Beanie was the one that <laughs> Beanie's still with us. Beanie the Pollock. I mean, she was a little bit more pushy on things and uh, more demonstrative. My dad uh, was m- much more patient. My dad served in World War II. He's a foot soldier in Germany. So Michael always felt from everything that my dad had seen in Germany during World War II created this patient outlook that he had once mm. he got back, being grateful to be home. And I, I believe that to be true. So, yeah, my dad was very, very patient. I think I developed that from him. I, I know I did. But beyond that, the, the style, um, I think we learned both things. We learned from the people that we never want to be like. And we learned from the people that we want to be like. Yeah. And so, I, you know, the coaches that I wanted to be like, Coach Bob Root, uh, from Lafayette College, wanted to be like Coach Root. Coach Root was my quarterback coach, backfield coach. Again, most patient and uh, thorough teacher that I wanted to please this man all the time. And then it was other coaches that I said to myself, I never want to be like that. I'll never treat yeah. my players like that. So I, I think and I, I, I believe that we learn from both styles and I've taken from both. And you take that, you combine that, and then, of course, who are you? Where do you come from? Were your parents like your aunts and uncles, the city that raised you? 
fight by Hazleton rates, it wasn't just, uh, it, it does take the village. I mean, I, I really believe that. I think that's part of our concern or problem now, that the family ties are not as, as solid or uh, complete as they had been. Whereas I, listen, I got out of the line. I got an uncle smacking, you know, I'm walking down the yeah. street and, you know, a friend of my dad sees me doing something wrong. Hey, get full authority, you know, to make sure that I stopped doing what I was doing wrong. School teachers say thing, football coaches, basketball, baseball coaches. Uh, I was mentored by so many different people in that small community. I, I'll argue with anybody that was the best uh, upbringing ever as a, as a young male person at that time to be yeah. given that opportunity to grow up. I ride my bike. I'd ride my bike eight miles to play ball, and I'd go through the strip ends, which is basically strip coal mining, and there was these big bukes with tires. And I don't know, each tire was like 10 feet tall. And I'm driving by these on a bicycle over slate and coal going to a ballpark over in Drifton or Shepton or, or not Shepton, Drifton or Freeland to play ball. But your parents, your dad, your mom never was worried about that. So there was all this independence that you had to learn yeah. to deal with things. And God, I mean, that's, that's part of what's missing right now. Everybody has, everything has to be scripted. We all have to be watched so closely. And listen, I get it. You see what's going on in the news and it's horrific. Yeah. But back then, um, it was a lot more independence to build it up. Well, yeah, the freedom the kids had then. Yeah. And I mean, the freedom that I had as a yeah. kid, you know, you'd leave in the morning and come back, you know, for lunch and then go back out again and come back for dinner, you know. Uh, you know, okay. my grandma had a bell that she would just ring and, you know, I'd be somewhere <laughs> you know, somewhere within a half mile and I'd be able to hear that bell and know what time it was and come back <laughs> home. But the, to think that I would be able to do that with my kids, although, you know, it's of course, Los Angeles as opposed to, yeah, there's just no chance. To me, I really believe you're talking about my style of doing things, my independent method of doing yeah. things. I think it was nurtured there in a real tough town, believe me, not tough town. I mean, we're talking yeah. coal miners and, you know, it wasn't, that was definitely blue collar. And, yeah. uh, you had to, you had taverns had a, and churches, yeah, I that's imagine. It. That's exactly yeah. right. And you had to fight a little bit, you know, uh, you know, it went sideways sometimes and you just, you just couldn't walk away from it. And yeah. all that stuff conspires to make you who you are. Emmy award-winning John Mulaney presents everybody's in LA, a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a joke fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my loves are grown? Just from like a, because I've wondered this myself. I've always thought you just take sort of like hazing as a concept. Come on. Come on. 
I've always, I've all, any kind of hazing I ever received, I thought, why would I pass that on? Mm-hmm. But then there, there's the other thing you can do with hazing is then think, now it's my turn to haze. <laughs> and I'm wondering, like, do you have any theories as to what, what it, ta- why a person would be treated like shit and then take that as inspiration to then treat people like shit when they get the opportunity? Yeah, for me, like I'm saying, that just makes me more, uh, it's going to die with me because I'm not going to pass that along. I'm, yeah, I, I, I'm it's not crazy. Gonna, it happened in baseball. It happened in big yeah. league baseball. And as, as a young coach getting to the big leagues, I, I, I saw it. And when you walk on the plane, as an example, uh, I'm getting to the big leagues for the first time. I'm not making any extra money. I'm not making any money at all as a coach, right? But you get on the plane and there's a certain standard you're supposed to dress to. And if you don't, you know, dudes have made fun of you walking on the airplane. And that, that's just, that would hurt me. That I mean, to the point when I became a manager, no dress code. And my dress yeah. code was, if you think you look hot, wear it. That was my dress code. I did yeah. not want to interfere with your, however you perceive yourself to be, what you thought was the right way to do things, your, your ability to uh, be independently showing this is what I think, this is what I believe. And I never wanted to interfere with that. So yeah. I never, I never did that. I never had a dress code. And a lot of it was precipitated on that. And the other thing was used that make dress codes are prob- are horrible dressers primarily because <laughs> they're trying to get you to dress to their standard. Yeah. And so I, I never wanted to do that. And so yeah, all those things, hazing. I mean, I was at Lafayette College, right? And our method of hazing when I was in a fraternity house, which I think was oh, this one was okay as an example, something like this. We had to make a human chain line down this huge set of steps down through east and across the bridge to this hot dog stand. And you had to get you have to get an order for the hot dogs for the for the brothers and the hot dogs got to get back up the steps before they got cold. I mean, something like yeah. that. Harmless, harmless, fun kind right. of stuff, things like that. When you, when you get to the point where you're starting to take a bite out of somebody's psyche, their confidence, yeah. their, and, and, you know, some people are able to deal with that and others are not. And I don't, yeah. I'm not going to take a chance that I'm going to mess with somebody that they're not ready or able to, to deal with their handle where I'm coming from. Plus I don't like it. I just don't like it. You, you mentioned that you kind of, I mean, you came from football country. Yeah. Um, and that, that was sort of your primary sport when you were younger. And when you started in college, in fact, you yeah. went there as a football player. Correct. What, what made you change? Well, I was always motivated by baseball. I, I knew, I knew my mom that could not afford to send me to college. Yeah. I knew that way back in the day, right? Dad's a plumber. I know everybody thinks plumbers make a lot of money. Not those plumbers. My dad did a lot of stuff on the barter system. If you couldn't pay, then maybe you might fix his car. You might do some carpentry for him. So that was, that was the gig back then. So my, my, my parents were not wealthy at all. So I knew I had to uh, get a scholarship. So I did really well in school and I did really well in athletics. And so I eventually get to Lafayette College on a, not a football scholarship. So everything was done by financial need, but I could have gone to Penn. I could have gone to Cornell. I could have gone to Brown. I could have gone other schools, uh, Lehigh. I mean, a lot of these schools are really, I could have gone to these other places too. And I chose Lafayette primarily because the coach that recruited me was outstanding. And he did recruited my yeah. family, my mom, everything else. I go down there, but, uh, I wanted to play baseball. See, and fortunately Lafayette, believe it or not, had a great baseball program. Coach from Gigon at that time who had played for the Cubs, in the big leagues briefly. Uh-huh. And, uh, and a bunch of things. I mean, the whole infield that I played with ended up in pro ball and no, wow. none made it to the big leagues, but some got real close. But the point was Lafayette football. I started as a freshman. I had a great Friggin' year. I mean, we were six and one, only lost to Rutgers, who had 25 guys on full, full scholarship. 
Um, so we beat everybody except them. My last game against uh, Lehigh, I had like four touchdown passes, 14 for 17, 13 in a row. And then I retired after the game because I just wanted to play baseball. I was tired. Wow. Of the football mentality. I did not like, uh, I just didn't like the football mentality anymore. And I didn't like getting hit all that much either. You know, it's starting to hurt. Yeah. So these guys kept getting bigger, but I wanted to play baseball. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play baseball. Yeah. And that's, that's what drove me. And then I'm at, I'm at Lafayette the next fall. So I'm going into my sophomore year and I'm supposed to be the starting quarterback at Lafayette varsity. And I'm out there and we're doing, um, we're doing practice football practice. Actually, this is my freshman year, ball football practice. And while we're doing that, the baseball team is playing fall baseball. And across the way in Mexico field, I could hear a crack, crack, crack at the bat. Thinking to myself, wow, I could actually be playing baseball. September and October if I wanted to. So that yeah. really led me to eventually after my freshman year, next year, I go back, I win this 1060 or 40 yard dashes, uh, six minute mom, almost throwing up. And the next day I brought up my playbook, gave it to coach Sarah and Co- coach Putnam and said, I don't want to do this anymore, which led my dad not to speak to me for months. How about that? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. How did the coaches react? Not good. Not good. Um, yeah. Uh, Coach Sarah came out. He came out of the building in his underwear, trying to talk me back. Then they coming back in, yeah, but I had my Volvo <laughs> packed in, '66 Volvo red Volvo. I'd already packed everything up. It's the middle of August because it go down there before school begins. Pack it up, and I drive back to Hazelton, an hour away, and I pull up, and I'm not supposed to be there. I'm supposed to be at football practice. I have to explain myself to everybody what I'm doing there. So I made that uh, unilateral decision. 19 years old, maybe at the time, that I don't want to do this anymore. And yeah. I just sprung it on everybody. I didn't give anybody a heads up. I just did it. When did you, when did you make up your mind? When did you, I mean, it was obviously in your head, but was yeah. there a point? Was it just, you know, were yeah. you still playing football? Like that last game when you had, you know, through touchdowns, yeah. were you like, I'm not going to do, this is the last one I'm doing or. I thought it might be, because I, I was so uh, infatuated with baseball because I was able to play, I played summer ball. I did really well in summer ball and Scranton. And I went to Boulder yeah. Colorado after that, but. I, I, I just wanted to play baseball. Baseball had my heart, you know, football yeah. was there to get me to college. Uh, I, I, you know, I've been quarterback since I was 10 years old. I would call my own play. So I had a great feel for the game, but I did not want to do it anymore, but it, it did what it needed to do was the vehicle to get me there. It was the vehicle yeah. to get me to play baseball locket. And I ran into this really good coach who coaches me in a way that I get to go to Boulder, Colorado in 1975, where I get signed to play after the WB, uh, NBC uh, championship national baseball Congress in Wichita, Kansas. We win, we win a national championship against Anchorage, Alaska, Fairbanks, all these really good teams. And I had a great series and that's how I got signed. So uh, Lafayette got me there. Football got me there, but eventually turned out to be baseball. When you say football mentality, what do you just mean sort of the aggressive aggressiveness of it or the meetings, you know, they sit in a meeting and it gets, it's a lot of it is, um, you know, there's a lot of sayings and slang. And I, I shouldn't even say that because eventually I'm the guy that invented all these t-shirts and developed all these slogans and sayings. But yeah, it was just, yeah. it was just, there was something about it that it just began to it just, it just began to ring hollow to me. I did not believe it anymore. I could not follow yeah. this, this almost form of uh, religion with football. And then again, like I said, physically, man, I know it was a small college, but they got big. My first time coming up to the line of scrimmage at Bucknell versus line. I looked at over the, the other side of it. And these guys had got big, fast, and looked from high school. So, and that's just even a small college at that time. 
So I wasn't worried. I wasn't afraid to get hit. That wasn't the point. I just, I wanted to play baseball. That's it. And I wanted to play baseball. Yeah. And I, I did not want to, to do both anymore. Uh, I wanted to focus because you could play, you could practice during football season. I could actually be playing baseball in the fall, yeah. even back there. So I did that and eventually worked out pretty well. I mean, one thing yeah. I like about, uh, one thing that's interesting to me about your story is how many, well, that there's, that there's adjustments. Yeah. That you don't, that there isn't, that you're not like set in one thing, like I'm going to be a quarterback yeah. and then you mm-hmm. become a quarterback. Cause you started out even in college as I believe a pitcher and a, yeah, very good. and a, and a, and an infielder. Right. I don't remember which, but, and then you end up a catcher. And I mean, describe like, like, were you always kind of open to that kind of, I mean, going into baseball, you know, when you say baseball had your heart, was it like, I can't wait to, you know be it be a big hitter or be an infielder or you know golden glove or was it just you wanted to be there somehow somehow i wanted to play baseball yeah. i mean all winter in the in the cold weather i would get my glove out and i would just smell it and i would just throw a ball on my gloves there's snow out there it's 10 degrees you can't go outside um so yeah. that 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 was part of it but you're right i was i went to lock yet i wasn't a catcher and i only caught like seven games in little league uh, Danny Matrosino pitch, I caught, and uh, vice versa. When I pitched, he caught. Um, so we're playing Lafayette. When we come here, like right down the street from where I'm at, this is in Tampa, right over there, University of Tampa. I played my first college baseball game. Got off a bus, like a twenty some hour bus ride from Lafayette down here. We played our first game at Tampa versus University of Columbia, and I pitched after no sleep wow. whatsoever. Got my ass kicked, right? So get my ass kicked, <laughs> and and we're here for a little bit. Then we never go down to play the Kansas City Royals baseball academy in Sarasota. That was a concept back then, a great concept, I believe, where the Royals were, were signing basically athletic-looking players and trying to make them or teach them into being baseball players. So I pitched there, and I pitched really well. I lost, I think, three nothing or something like that in that game. But after the game, the manager, Coach Gigon, says, uh, "We need catching. Our catcher was not very good at that time." Does anybody, would anybody like to catch? And as a pitcher, I wasn't hitting that time and I wanted to hit. So I raised my hand that I could catch. I caught the next day and I stunk. I mean, I'm missing balls and the umpire's getting hit and the other team is laughing at me and I can't throw anybody out. But uh, he stuck with me and I kept getting better. And eventually uh, that off season, that I was down that gym every day throwing into a lacrosse net in our indoor mm. facility to make sure I got better at it. And eventually that next year, I was throwing everybody out. And I played way, way better. And all of a sudden, I became interesting as a catcher. But that's how it began. I volunteered. And I'm catching the next day. And I absolutely was horrible. And, uh, but I did work. And I got better at it. But that was it. I volunteered. And uh, it was scary. But it's what I wanted to do because I wanted to hit also. Were there other catchers that were like you know, performing a little better than you? What no. was it about you that made him stick with you? Because I'm an athlete. I was an athlete and uh, he could see it in me. I could hit a little bit too. So he got my yeah. bat in the lineup there. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a pretty quick study. So, you know, I'm, I'm, when I'm saying I stuck, I couldn't throw any, my feet, my timing, you know, blocking a little bit was off. So you have to get your feet right. By the end of that year, I was doing a lot better with that. But in the beginning, I couldn't, I couldn't throw anybody out because my feet were like, tangle foot, how do you do this? And when the ball's in the dirt, how do you move the block? I didn't know that, um, but I did quickly. And, uh, you know, when you're, when you're that young and you really want to do something, you'll figure it out. And the, my coach, he was good, man. He stayed with me. 
He gave me opportunity. He worked with me every day. And so I got through it pretty quick. That kind of nomadic life. And I mean, you're going, you know, and it's not like you're going from sexy place to sexy place. You're going to, from like real kind of, you know, dots on the map to dots on the map. Uh, Is that hard to get used to? Or is it just that the love of baseball is so strong that it doesn't matter? I loved every second of it. I love being on buses. I actually, um, even back at Lafayette at an art class, they did a, like my, an abstract about um, a highway or road, you know, the, the perspective of, as, it, as it fades into the distance with the colorful trees on it. I love the road. I still love the road. Yeah. I love driving. I, had, I just got rid of my RV, uh, the Cousin Eddie, because it just was always in the shop. So I just, and I had no place to park it, but I, lo- I love driving. I'm good. Mm. Uh, like when I go from Tampa to Pennsylvania in a couple of weeks, I'm driving up coast. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoy driving, and uh, my van's getting fixed right now. It's '76 Dodge van. Once that's done, I'll be able to drive that sucker. That'll be like my mini van that I could drive around. But I've always the allure of the road. Where am I going? Uh, there's a there's a romantic component to all that. You're in the minor leagues. Um, you don't know any better. Those little Visayan, or if you're going to Boise, Idaho or Idaho Falls or Midland, Texas to Beaumont. That's not a fun ride, brother. But I sat in the front. <laughs> I sat in the front with my pillows and my old headset and a book. I was a big reader. I, I read, man. Yeah. I read, I read, and I read, and I'm grateful for the, the, the habit of reading. When you, when you start to, when you transfer into coaching, managing, scouting, you have to kind of let go of the idea of yourself as a player. Is that, is that difficult or is it kind of, you're still, because you're still good to be part of it. It was easy for me because everything hurt, you know, and just, uh-huh. you know, I pulled hamstrings constantly. I hurt my shoulder playing in Boulder one day, just flipping the ball around the, the hitter on a third strike. It popped for the first time. Everything, little nagging things start happening. So once I stopped playing, I was good with that. I never, ever, never had a desire to play again. I had, I was, I was an an old baseball player at 26, 27. I was a very mm. young coach and a manager at that same age. So I went from being like old and decrepit to like a bonus baby kind of a dude and went felt swoop just by agreeing to become a manager and a scout. And uh, that was such a, such a wonderful time, such a great decision. And the people that I worked with, I had such wonderful mentors. And Larry Hives is the guy that gave me my break. Larry was the GM of the Cubs and the GM of the White Sox eventually at one point. Larry mm-hmm. was the guy that taught me how to scout. Larry's the guy that gave me my big break and Marcel Lashing is the other one. But uh, I was taught by the Southern California group of coaches and scouts. And I, I'm, I am biased. I think uh, there's a fundamentalist method about the way they teach the game with baseball. And I'm so appreciative that I learned from these guys. I mean, fundamentals, A to Z, the straightforward. No BS, man. They tell you straight up. Nobody sugarcoats anything. Boom. This is what's going on. I love it. And that's why you've, you've seen so many good players, obviously. It's the weather, I get it. But there's a method in that area that I, like the Long Beach State, that Dave Snow, Snowman, and the, and the dirt bags over there. All, you know, Rod Dato at USC, uh, uh, Augie Garrido and the group that was at Cal State Fullerton. All these guys, Orange Coast, uh, Virginia College. This, uh, there's a real brotherhood fraternity down there, a method of teaching the game. My first sports psychologist, mental skills coach, Ken Revisa, 
passed away a couple of years. You know, Kenny was a professor at Cal State Fullerton. Kenny was so far ahead of his time. Him and Harvey Dorfman, I learned from these guys. So I, I have empathy when it comes to those that are struggling maybe with the mental skills or the mental component of the game, but had such great teachers uh, that I'm able to, you know, take what I've heard or learned from these guys and pass it on and incorporate my own thoughts into it. But I'm eternally grateful that I learned my craft as a coach and a scout in Southern California among those men. They were the best. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific time, only on Netflix. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my love's a grow? You just sort of get a sense of the feeling, the feeling of somebody's, you know, their attitude or their carriage. All that matters. Absolutely. And yeah. you, have, you have to be able to conversation, maybe find out the attitude, maybe talk to coaches, maybe teammates on their team. There was a kid that I didn't put in for the draft that pitcher out of Mason community called a good arm. I didn't put him in for the draft only because pregame, he had never put his hat on. Now that just screamed at me. Like everybody's out there with their hat on. This kid had good hair. He's walking around and he's not putting <laughs> his hat on. Or if, or if it, it, after an inning, if you have a bat at bat or, you know, you have a bad inning, I want to see what they look like when they go in the dugout and sit on the bench. I want to see how they react. Because, you know, the game is really a lot of bad moments. How do you, how do you yeah. decipher and control the bad moments and not the good ones? It's easy. Everybody, it's easy to look good when things are going well. I like the guy that looks good when things are going poorly. And I would always yeah. try to try to determine that. And then after that, which we're talking about, what do you look for? Move. Movement. How does your body move? Fluidity about the movement. Quickness. Life. Speed. I mean, you could you could see speed just based on watching. Then you do your stop march. That's what we did. And then arm strength was a big part of it. If you if your arm worked well and it was loose and limber and smooth and the ball came out hot, you, you're going to scout speed and arm from the beginning. That's what we did uh, because normally there's the other stuff. Um, if those things those are hard to teach. It's hard to teach that your arm's going to get better. It's hard to teach that you're going to run better, but you could definitely teach somebody to touch the ball better. You could definitely mm-hmm. uh, teach somebody possibly to hit better. Now, of course you want all those things in place if you can, but if you can't, you're always evaluating the five tools, which should be throw defense, hit, hit with power and will. Those would be the five things you'd look for with a position player. And then with the pitcher, a little bit different. And again, yes, velocity did matter, but you're looking for a smooth arm stroke. Uh, for me, I'd like to see if a guy can really spin the ball, meaning he had a lot of strength in his forearm and his wrist. And uh, how old is he? And 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 how big and tall is he going to look? And, is, is, and again, is this a smoothness about him? Is it? Is it? They called it uh, maximum effort. Like, is he real uh, jerky? And and does he have to grunt right every time he throws the ball, or does it just come out like like Jacob Degrom or Zach Wheeler? Mm-hmm. Those these guys are to me 
that's like they do like this. They put a ball in the conveyor belt and it just goes, wait, that's that yeah. smoothness. And other guys, uh, you, you'll see them uh, just bump and ride all the time. Alan Herboski, you know, the old uh, left-hander for the Cardinals is an example. So you're looking for body movement. You're looking for fluidity. You're looking, you want guys to do things easily. You want, it's a tension-free game. And if you're playing the game with tension, it's, it becomes increasingly more difficult. Just like what you do and what I do, even in my dugout. I have to be tension free in my in my job. Yeah. When you're sitting on the, when you're sitting on the couch with with Conan, there's a it's got to be tension free, and if it is, your your mind reacts more quickly and it better. Yeah. And so that's you're looking for that tension free, smooth body. You didn't get a chance to manage with the Angels, correct? You kind of were with them for a number of years, but you had to leave in order to be. Was that when you went to Tampa? Yeah, I was interim manager for like 60-some games. I interviewed twice and was did not get the job. Soch got it. Mike Socha got it in 2000. Yeah. And it was the right decision. Bill Stolen made the right decision. Before that, Billy chose uh, Terry Collins over me. And again, I think it was the right decision. I still didn't have all my act together at that point. I was still uh, learning my ways, my methods, my... Um, I, I needed more time as a major league coach to really understand because I never played there. So I wanted, I wanted to really understand how does this work? How do I fit in? Uh, how do I react? How do I work with those that are making a lot of money, guys that have been around veteran players? I got, I got to know exactly what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. So I needed more time. So I didn't yeah. get that opportunity. I, I also interviewed for uh, the Red Sox when Tio Francona got it, Terry got it. And I also interviewed for the, Mariners when uh, Mike Hargrove got it, and I interviewed for the Diamondbacks when they gave it to Wally Backman and then took it away. But the one job I had not gotten it would have been the one that I mean the the race job, the Devil Race. If I had not gotten that one, that would have cut me a little bit because that's the job that was perfect for me. You became sort of a specialist at turning a club around. Did it? Did you did you have a a sense of yourself that that was something that you were able to do or, yes. or did you just kind of come in and I find so much of so many different aspects of life, it's problem solving, yep. but you can't really look at the whole thing. You just kind of take them one at a time, you know, yep. and, and just kind of, and then you create this kind of chain of, I don't know, you know, success if the decisions are going right. Did you know, like, did you feel this pressure? Like I got to turn this thing around or were you just kind of like, Winning one game at a time. Got to go back to the 80s. I used to run the Angel minor league system for years on the field. Mm -hmm. I was the coordinator and I had a I had carte blanche then. And I created all these different programs. And to not bore you, but briefly, this because this had a great impact on me. 1984, I worked in the instructional league in Arizona. This was like our jewel. I love the instructional league. Mm -hmm. And I'm out there in the cage and I'm throwing batting practice. I'm throwing like a nauseam. And here comes Gene Mock. Gene's our manager at that time. Gene walks up to me. He could be like, one of those, and Gene's got perfect hair, kind of like mine. <laughs> and, and he had like, like, he has like polyester on everywhere, white shoes, smoking a schmag, calls me over and says to me, you've created a great atmosphere. And then he walks away. So I go back to the phone and I'm thinking to myself, what the hell is he talking about? What does he mean? I created, I, I said, if he's recognizing that now, I want to be able to replicate this in the future. And if I yeah. don't, if I don't take time to think about this, it's just going to be haphazard. It's going to be serendipitous whether it works again or not. So that one moment, to answer your question, caused me to stop and think, and this is what I concluded. What we had done there, number one, we built relationships. 
conversationally, little uh, inter- meetings with the players individually, talk about their strong points, the weak points, uh, got them involved in their own uh, conclusions or answers. So it started with building relationships. And when you do that, then we establish trust. They trusted me. They, I, I've always told them, I, you have my trust. I have, to, I have to earn yours. So trust. But after that, big. Now you can exchange ideas because when, until you get to the point where you have a relationship and I trust, we trust each other, it's hard to exchange ideas because everybody wants to be right. Everybody wants to push back if, if your idea is not being accepted. So the exchange of ideas has to follow those first two. And then eventually, here's the one that makes it all work, is that um, constructive criticism flows. I mean, at that point, we could be constructively critical of one another because we've accepted. I know you. I like you. We trust you. Yeah, you got some good stuff going on, good ideas. But now, hey, I disagree with you, man. I don't like that. I think I think it needs to be this. And now it's not pushback. It's not blowback. It's not me trying to be right. It's me being a part of this team, and I'm giving you my best my best fault right here. So yeah. every place I went to after that, I began with those thoughts. That's to me how you build culture. And off yeah. of that culture, it's empowerment, empowering my coaching staff. It's with players. Uh, giving them out of the way of them becoming great. Don't think I know everything about uh, how to do this with them. And of course, the younger the player, the more guidance they need. The older the player, maybe the less guidance they need, but they still need input. But I'm, I'm there to hopefully be a, an aid, but I never, ever want to get in the way of your greatness by imposing my mores on you, my methods, my thoughts, what I believe the right way to do it. But you, know, you might be right, and I'm just being stubborn. So the, all this stuff came out of that one gene coming up to me and telling me that that one day it caused me to think all these different things that I intentionally worked from when I went to the Rays and I intentionally worked with the Cubs and I intentionally worked again when I went back to the Angels before I was let go and it was starting to turn and all of a sudden I was just let go very abruptly, but those are my thoughts. And I think if yeah. you, that those are my thoughts. Now, whatever your thoughts are, if you're going to establish, you're going to go in and try to do a turnaround. Uh, you need to know what you believe in, and then you yeah. need and you need to stick to that. And you need you need to stand strong sometimes because people are not going to like it. People are just going to be in, contrarians to you just because they want to be there, just want to mess with you. So you got to yeah. know you got to know what you believe in, and then and then you get to buy it, and then all of a sudden magic happens. Well, uh, what about outside of baseball? What mm-hmm. are, what are you looking forward to? You know. Uh, you know, in your, in the coming days of your life, do you have, do you have any kind of like 10 year plan, anything like that? Well, um, I'd like to break Andy on a consistent basis. That, <laughs> that would be like, that'd be my yeah. number, number one pike. And would be that, uh, yeah. n- number two is just to, um, to really enjoy the day, stay in the present tense and be ready for what comes next without trying. You know what I mean? Is that difficult for you? Nope. Not at all. No, not at all. Okay. I'm, I'm really good at, um, like this morning, I got up a little bit early. So I spent about half hour just meditating before I got up. Yeah. Uh, uh, what I meditate on, everybody should, when it comes to meditation to me, everybody should have an overall cocktail and I have my own. And yeah. when I do that, the rest of the day, uh, it's just easier. It's just it's easier. So well, I'll be, I'm 69. I'll be 70 next February, believe it or not. So for me, if I could, but the line is, if you take care of the seconds, the minute, the minutes, the hours, and the days will take care of themselves. So mm. I, I believe if I could focus in right here, right now, and sometimes it gets ratty, sometimes it gets hairy, and other times it just flows like like a beautiful river, right? 
but if you could approach both the, 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 the chaos or the serenity in the same manner, eventually what's supposed to work out is going to. And that, that's what I come from. Yeah, I mean, you have such a great way of creating axioms or mottos right. or something. Right. Is, there, is there kind of like a, a, a prime one? Is there, a, is there a main directive that you follow of all, you know, your, your, your different kind of ones. Yeah. There's you know, a many lot of which, many of which you go into in the book of Joe, I mean, that, that chapter headings are pretty much, mm-hmm. you know, different sort of, you know, there's all different, well, like axioms. I say axioms, yeah, exactly, mottos. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Well, I've, I've been doing that ever since the eighties. I mean, I started in the eighties where everyday counts because I wanted to really have my coaching staff understand that redundancy is a big part of what we do. So understand you get, you're going to have to do that. You have to repeat, 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 because that light bulb goes, that light bulb moment just happens. You never know when it's going to happen. So yeah. every day counts. Don't let up because, oh, he doesn't listen or he, he doesn't retain well, or he doesn't care. You know, you can't, you got to get beyond that. You got to uh, approach it with the same zest for zeal every day as a teacher, because you don't know when that moment's going to arrive when the aha moment occurs. Uh, yep. for, for me, I mean, like you said, the, the book, there was two premises, compare and contrast managing in the 1980s, the present day. And the other one was to take these axioms, uh, slangs, whatever these, uh, sayings and, um, create kind of a leadership book out of it. Also, mm-hmm. I've had great, great, uh, feedback from those that really, I mean, even to one person says this would be taught an MBA class in which, wow, I'll take that, you know, yeah, that, that was actually somebody out of NYU. So I'll take that. The one, the one, I guess that probably, you know, try not to suck is always going to be one of my favorite. It's even on the book, but, <laughs> but, but to never permit the pressure to exceed the pleasure. Think about it. We, we've, we've always wanted to do something since we got, since I was six, I wanted to be a major league baseball player. We all, we, we work, we work, we work to a certain goal and we, we finally get there. And then some people actually hate what they eventually end up doing because yeah. they feel pressure. To me, if you hear the word pressure or expectation, you're absolutely on the right track and run toward it. Never run away from it. Baseball, if there's pressure and expectation attached to wherever you're at, you're in the right spot. And if those words are not attached, go somewhere else. So mm. never permit the pressure to exceed the pleasure of the moment or the situation. And that was Chris Bryant. KB loved that. When I brought that out to KB, he loved that. And that's something that I worked on with Kenny Ramizza, my buddy that I told you is the sports psychologist, Kenny and I. Mm-hmm. I think that that pretty much, you know, there's, there's like a Zen component to that, but there's also like, again, you work so hard and then you're going to, again, run away from this thing because we're all afraid. We're all afraid of something. We're, we, we have this natural fear that we can't even uh, define. Why is it there? Where does it come from? What does it mean? Why does it hold us back? Feel the fear and do it anyway. That's another good one, but that's a book that yeah. I read years ago. Um, but it's true. We all, we hit this, we hit this wall of fear and we don't even know why. And that's where this pressure and expectation gets in the way of us fulfilling our dreams. And um, for me, you just got to bang that, bang that door down, man, bang it down. Yeah. It's interesting to me because don't let the pressure exceed the pleasure, but then you didn't, you didn't then talk about, here's how you can get the pleasure out of it. You yeah. said, head straight into the pressure, right? If you feel, if you, there's pressure, you got to stick with the pressure. Yeah. And I just, I think that's interesting because 
you know, that you're, you're saying stick with the thing that you want to keep as a minimal, as right. opposed to the thing that exceeds it. You know, I guess that's, pro that's your inspiration pleasure you're going to find, you know, and it's, uh, you know, and if you find it while you're, while you're heading into that pressure, then yeah, then it's even sweeter. But that's where it's located. It's located. There. Yeah. So, uh, to me, Dan, if I walked out of the dugout in the seventh game of the world series, brother, I am jacked. I am so jacked. Yeah. I'm not afraid. I'm, I'm jacked. Yeah. You know, you're so excited. Um, you know, I've, I've been in, I've been in game sevens. I've been in wild card elimination games as a manager. I've been in all-star games that counted that we had to win one, one in St. Louis lost one in Miami. I think that counted in Miami too. I think that still counted, but man, that's, that brings out the best in you. That's when your mind is alive. That's, yeah. that's when you should be doing your best work. I think yeah. if you're truly prepared, I mean, again, that's another thing. If you like, you'd like kind of skate it to get where you're at you don't really have a basis or yeah, I get it. I get it. But if you have a solid base and you, and you really believe in what you're saying, you know what you're talking about, go for it. And you know what? If it yeah. doesn't work, the other team's a bunch of professionals too. They have every right to beat you. They're pros. Yeah. They're not, they're not a bunch <laughs> of rummies. So that's always cracks me up too. When, when eventually something doesn't work out, it's like you made a mistake. Time out. Those guys get paid too. Those guys yeah. are good. It didn't work out. It's, there's a lot of times, um, I'll say it, uh, you make a decision. It's not that it was wrong. It just didn't work out because the other team's paid to not make it work out. It's just, just to be mm -hmm. aware of that too. Uh, and I am, but that, that gets, that gets lost sometimes. And, uh, but yeah, I, I totally love the concept uh, this is going to be hairy, man. This is going to be hairy. And then yeah. that wake that wakes you up. That wakes you yeah. up. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time out uh, to talk to me. Um, the book of Joe, Trying Not to Suck at Baseball in Life. Uh, it's re it's really a fun read. Thank and you. just to sort of see your story, but then also there is, there's a lot of stuff to think about. You really do kind of uh, give the reader a lot to chew on. So uh, thank, thank you. you for that. And, uh, and good luck. I mean, when June or July rolls around, I can't wait to figure out what, what you decide to do. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to hanging out with you at some point. I owe you a drink somewhere, man. I'd like to be able oh, to I'd, do I'd, that. I'll take you up on that. I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to be in Chicago at some point this summer. I don't even but you're out in L.A., but uh, yeah. listen, man, I, I appreciate this. I've been a big fan for a while. I love your work. I think you're you're brilliant at what you do, and I was really looking forward to having a chance to visit with you. I mean that sincerely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. Appreciate it. And thank all of you out there for listening. Uh, I'll be back next week uh, with another one of these. Bye-bye. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco production. It is produced by Sean Doherty and engineered by Rich Garcia. Additional engineering support by Eduardo Perez and Joanna Samuel. Executive produced by Nick Liao, Adam Sachs, and Jeff Ross. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, with assistance from Maddie Ogden. Research by Alyssa Grawl. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to The Three Questions with Andy Richter wherever you get your podcasts. And do you have a favorite question you always like to ask people? Let us know in the review section. Can't you tell my love's a-growing? Can't you feel it ain't a-showing? Oh, you must be a-knowing. I've got a big, big love. This has been a Team Coco production. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? 
Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. If there's anything better than getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's, it's getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's for less in the McDonald's app. Mm. Delicious. Order in the McDonald's app today. Right now, only in the app. Enjoy a breakfast sandwich for just $1, like a sausage McMuffin with egg. Offer valid one time per day from 429 to 512.24 at participating McDonald's. Must opt into rewards. 